The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number 147 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm Andy Bonello, pinch hitting for George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on the show are my own and not that of my present or past employers. I'll never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I'll never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. And nothing I say during the show should be construed as legal or financial advice. Before we get started, I want to remind everyone that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and get a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at the very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and to get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Well, folks, I felt it was time I brought my professional executive coach onto the show tonight. I'm excited to have the founder of the Selby Group, Mrs. Jennifer Selby Long, on the show with us tonight. But last week, George had former 8200 member and co-founder of Orca Security, Avi Shuer, on the show. Avi talked about his experiences at 8200 member of the Israeli Defense Force, what he learned that has helped him become a successful entrepreneur, entrepreneur why soft skills are important in the military and how he's able to apply learnings from a government agency in the innovative space of cybersecurity startups. Avi explained who the cybersecurity, the Silicon Valley CISO investment group is, what they're about and what he learned from the most recent round of funding for his company, Orca Security, and how to mitigate lateral movement risk in cloud environments. All this and much, much more on episode number 146 of Task Force 7 Radio. That's why are so many former members former members of 8200 Successful Entrepreneurs on last week's episode of Task Force 7 Radio. So we have a very special guest on the show with me tonight. We have the founder of Selby Group, Mrs. Jennifer Selby Long. Jennifer is an executive coach specializing in helping you become the leader you want to be, accelerating strategic alignment and transforming management teams. In her consulting practice, Jennifer integrates executive coaching and leadership development directly in her client's business strategies to achieve extraordinary results. Jennifer has coached and developed over 3,000 leaders and professionals in organizations such as diverse as Silicon Valley startups to Fortune 500 companies. Her clients include leaders at such highly regarded companies as Sienna, Airbnb, LinkedIn, Cisco Systems, and Mozilla. Jennifer is a thought leader who has been quoted in New York Times, Univision, Fast Company, Information World, Dice, MSNBC, and the Bulletin of Psychological Type. She is the author of upcoming books, The New IT Leader, how to Stop Taking Orders and Start Transforming the Business, and 100 Ways to Crush It at Work. She's also the only management consultant featured in the groundbreaking book, Engaging Resistance, How Ordinary People Successfully Champion Change by San Francisco State University business professor, Aaron Anderson. Jennifer also serves on the advisory board for the leadership program at UC Berkeley Extension of the School of Business, Technology, and Engineering, and she obtained her Master's of Arts degree in Speech Communication from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. It's my pleasure to introduce founder of Selby Group and my executive coach, Mrs. Jennifer Selby Long. Jennifer, welcome to Task Force 7 Radio. Thank you, Andy. I'm delighted to be here. Man, I'm super pumped you're on the show tonight. We've been working together for a little bit now, like a year and a half, and yeah. my growth has been tremendous, you know, under your coaching. And man, I, you know, my, my peers and I talk about coaching all the time and in in, as we move up in our career, how we're given these opportunities to work with folks like yourself and it doesn't happen early on. And man, I wish I had access to someone like you, you know, at a younger age and early, early in my career. And it's funny because I've met so many people throughout my journey that claim to be coaches or mentors. And heck, I think I even fit into that category, right? But 
I'm not part of the billion dollar life coach, <laughs> executive coaching industry, right? And yeah. certainly there are no barriers to entry if I can be called coach or a mentor. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, so, so tell us, like, what, what is executive coaching, right? And what to expect out of it? Like, what is it? Okay, great. Uh, executive coaching is a highly intensive one-on-one -on -one process. And the intent is to help you become the leader you want to be and that your company needs you to be. And so it's really about helping these successful people get even better. So an executive coach is typically going to combine business knowledge with personal development knowledge to create this experience for you and with you. I got to tell you, like every time we meet, I feel like I'm getting on the couch. <laughs> I think coaching is like therapy sometimes. We dig in it. We dig in deep, but the outcomes are, in my mind, are just are so great. And, you know, I, I guess I would say I've always felt like I needed a coach, never really knew one that I could trust, but, but I also didn't really know where to go and, like, what the process was to decide that I need. Like, how, how does one come to the conclusion that they need a coach? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, and I get asked this a lot. Um, and it's funny because I'm so ambivalent about thinking of coaching in terms of need, which somehow implies a deficit. Like, am I deficit deficient enough to need a coach sometimes? Let's <laughs> take a little body checking, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, in my practice, just to reassure every listener, well under 10%, and I mean well under 10% of clients over the last 25 years have been addressing something you might think of as a career derailing deficit. There are really two main leader reasons that a leader is going to want to work with an executive coach like me. One is that they're real high-performing leaders. They've got potential to expand in their role even more or move up even more, contribute more to the company's success. And the other is that they're leading large-scale change transformations in their organizations. Not all executive coaches work in that second space, but it's one of my specialties. So a lot of uh, my clients are actually working with both of those, those goals in mind. So when I think about, you know, do I need a coach? Um, I'd, I'd ask folks to ask themselves, will coaching help me achieve my business and professional goals? Is this a good choice for me? And without a doubt, I would say it comes down to just a few things, and I can't wait to hear your perspective on this as well, Andy. The first <laughs> oh, one. <laughs> back on the couch, and it's my show. Back on the couch. <laughs> so, first of all, do you have a goal in mind? Maybe you're an executive who wants to transform your organization and the value that it adds. Or maybe you're a director who wants to become a VP. Or maybe you just want less turnover on your team. You're losing a lot of your best people. But you got to have a goal, right? And the second thing I would ask is, is it possible that you can reach this goal by changing your behavior? Or is it likely that you're going to reach this goal by staying the same and just getting some new knowledge? Because the thing about coaching is, as you said, is sometimes it feels like getting on the couch. Coaching does lead to behavioral change. And so if you can just reach your goal by gaining new knowledge, then you probably don't want to work with a coach. You, you just want to work with someone who's an expert in that area and can teach you. And so my third thing I think you should ask yourself is, it, is your boss in agreement with your goal? Now, this doesn't matter when I work with a CEO or a founder, but for everyone else, it helps to be aligned. And you don't want to go six months into your coaching engagement, talk to your boss and, and you know, hear, well, you are becoming a much better listener, but really the thing you should work on is micromanagement. You've always stunk in that space. <laughs> and so it's really key to know what your boss thinks are the, the greatest return stretches for you, basically. Um, and that's often in agreement with you, but sometimes it can surprise you. Something you're really sure you need to get better at, your boss will be like, oh, you're already better than we need at that. No, 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 no. Work on this instead. And then the last one, and I would say of equal importance to the other three is, do you have enough courage, humility, discipline, and persistence to get frank, sometimes blunt feedback, to try on entirely different ways of looking at yourself and at others? 
and examine how you get in your own way sometimes instead of just analyzing how people and processes in your company get in the way. You know, not everyone can handle the intensity of executive coaching. You have to have that fierce desire to learn and to grow. And your prospective coach can help you decide if you're ready and if it's a good fit. So Andy, what, what's your take on that? <laughs> well, before you get into me again, yeah. <laughs> we'll catch our session on Friday. <laughs> but I did. So, is that really the difference between a coach and a mentor? Like the, the, oh. having the ability to get people to open up, check the ego, and you know, have that frank conversation. Like, are mentors inherently like too nice to this process? <laughs> is that the difference? <laughs> yeah, you got to be a lot meaner to be a coach, Andy. You know that. No, I'm kidding. Um, essentially, the fundamental difference between a coach and a mentor or, say, advisor is that your coach is going to use a structured process and a big toolkit to help you achieve your development goals. You know, a coach isn't going to hand you a case study. Your real-life challenges are the case studies, and you work with those things live. Coaching is really focused on creating that lasting behavioral change, not just internal awareness, personal insights. It's all about those visible behaviors that are the metric of the growth. Now, your advisor or mentor is under no obligation to bring you a process for your own growth. Typically, an advisor or mentor is going to have deep experience in a particular area, and they're going to serve as a guide and a sounding board for that specialty. Now, some of us provide both executive coaching and advisory or mentoring services. So, for example, in my case, I provide advisory services on organizational strategy, business insights, organizational development, because I worked in that field for many years. I often work with clients in both roles, since so many of my clients are transforming organizations, and they recognize that the starting point to transform the organization is, you know it, transform yourself. So, I, yeah, I, listen, as I think about picking a coach, um, trust comes to mind, mm -hmm. um, you know, being able to feel very comfortable and, and be able to open up and have that conversation and take that back, which you so candidly give me, thankfully. Um, but you know, how do you, how does that relationship happen quickly for most people? Right. Um, you know, you were referred to me and, and so this was, it comes from a place of, um, trust inherent, yeah. but, you know, for someone that's brand new, doesn't yeah. just kind of meet you for the first time, how are you, how do they pick you? Why you? Yeah. And um, how do you get to people to feel so comfortable so quick? Yeah. Oh, man. Great questions. Well, you know, it is really tough to pick a coach these days. Um, there are none of the signposts that we get with other professions like widely respected licenses or certifications. So it is really tough for someone who doesn't already know a coach that they want to work with. But I would say the, the first thing to do is to look at your needs and goals. And for example, if you just took over as a CISO and you want both coaching and advisory services, we'll look for a coach who provides that. But if you just got promoted into your first management role, first of all, congratulations. And secondly, look for a coach who specializes in that transition rather than a coach who spends most of her time with executives and directors. Uh, because you really want someone who who understands the kind of transition that you want to make and the kind of growth that you're looking for. The second key, Andy, you know, um, we started working together through a referral and no surprise, I'm going to say, ask leaders you respect if they work with a coach and who that coach is because a referral is really the single best way to screen out prospective coaches who are just going to waste your time. If you see this leader getting the results that you want to get, your situations are similar in some meaningful ways, odds are in your favor that this coach is going to be effective in that space, and that's really going to help you hit the ground running faster, build that trust faster. And of course, when you meet with the coach, you really do get that sense pretty early on um, as to whether that, that's going to click for you in the way it did for that other leader that worked with the coach. You, you know pretty quickly and you know trust that gut feeling on that one. Now, I'd say the third thing to look for is really a process. Coaching, for all our jokes about, oh, I'm getting on the couch and Dr. Freud is here, you know, coaching is not therapy, right? It's not just listening. Great coaches are going to bring a 
disciplined, life-tested process to make that measurable improvement toward a development goal. And any really sound, solid coach is going to be able to tell you what their process is. Um, and, you know, I have my process, other coaches have theirs, but for sure you're going to want to have some kind of feedback mechanism in that. And you're going to want that to be ongoing. You're going to want to meet regularly, but, you know, not all the time. You're going to want to have um, access to that coach between appointments. Um, you're going to want to have some self-assessment, right? And you're going to want to work with tools day in and day out. So, you know, we work with a daily behavioral checklist, right? You've used it to make some some significant growth of your own where at the end of each day you're doing an assessment of uh, whether you did your best right to try these new behaviors you're trying them on you're tracking your efforts and you know you're also typically with most coaches certainly myself you're going to be learning and working with frameworks that are going to help you more clearly understand how your own behaviors within the context of your company, within the context of your industry, you know, might be motivated by the right things or, but not have the desired effect. And so, you know, I use three frameworks that I happen to like, but I think the main thing to look at is does your coach use frameworks? Do they have deep expertise in the frameworks, in their coaching process, in getting uh, feedback and helping you process it? Um, so I hope that helps. It, it, it does. No, I think okay. people are going to appreciate it. I mean, look, look, at the end of the day, like it's a commitment from both sides. Big time. And, and you've got to be willing to take that journey. And, and you know, look, I'm just yeah. thankful we have people like you out there that can help take folks like me to another level. <laughs> you know, but, but okay, folks, we got to transition to a commercial break here. So, hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio. And you'll be connected to the extended TF7 family and your favorite social media platform. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, please email George directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at tf7. That's with the number seven, radio.com. We're going to pause for some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with founder of Selby Group, Mrs. Jennifer Selby Long. So whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Sinet, S-I-N-E-T. You can't see it. You can't smell it. You can't taste it. But it can bankrupt your company. It's internal risk. 
Insider fraud, ethics violations, and remote workforce risk have plunged many a company into reputational crisis. Don't be one of them. The corporate investigative team at Bluecoat have managed cybersecurity and risk mitigation in the White House, Silicon Valley, and everywhere in between. To see how Bluecoat can help protect you, visit TrustBlueCoat.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with founder of Selby Group, Mrs. Jennifer Selby Long. Jennifer, the world is in chaos right now, right? COVID-19, remote working, um, everything's just flipped upside down, um, you know, in terms of leading teams, how we work, um, you know, feel like there's different stages that people go through, um, you know, as you're managing crisis, um, but, you know, can you, can you give us a little insight into the process that we're all going through and how we can lead ourselves and others through, through the crisis? Yeah, abs- absolutely. You know, this COVID-19 pandemic has forcefully shoved every person in every organization, including probably almost everyone listening to this show into never ending waves of personal change. And, you know, you didn't create this unprecedented global change, but if you're in a leadership role, it's up to you to lead your people through it. And it's hard. It's very hard. Large scale transformational change is so much harder than anyone anticipates. And it goes on for so much longer than anyone anticipates. And we're just getting started on this one. So buckle up. It's going to be a long ride. I'm going to share some tips here. It's a rich, rich topic. And I do blog on it quite a bit. So if you'd like to get more detail, more practical applications than we can cover on the show, uh, just please go over to selbygroup.com. You can sign up for the blog there and get those updates as they come out. So when we look at that, personal experience of change and why that matters is really everyone goes through three major stages in a change. And these are personal changes. And you know, Andy, there's an often shared statistic that 75% of large-scale organizational changes fail. And the reason is it's not the technology fails. It's not bad change management. Change management is a well-defined art and science with a whole army of professionals that do it. It's actually because of leaders' failure to take into account the subjective personal experience of change that their people are going through. And so to understand that really helps you lead them more effectively through these crises and changing times. So, Jennifer, are you saying it's okay to be human as a leader? (laughs) Amazing, but true, isn't it? We can be people. (laughs) (laughs) You can be people too. (laughs) Love it. You don't have to stop. In fact, you know, your people will be much happier following a real live human being with, you know, complete with flaws and everything than um, kind of a super strong robot. (laughs) For sure. So, you know, those three stages are really largely in sequence, though you can bump back into a prior stage as different things happen, but it's really going to start with going into something called losses and endings. And so whatever was before, it's gone, it's stopped, it's not happening anymore. And so when people are in the losses and endings phase, 
um, you're going to notice that they feel fear, and if you're the boss, they're maybe trying to hide it from you, but you can pick it up, right, if you really pay attention. You're going to note some sadness, right, even a little bit of paralysis. If you find yourself struggling to make a simple decision that two weeks ago, you know, you could have made effortlessly, it might be a sign that you're in losses and endings. And one of the things that can happen in, in losses and endings is people can start to feel like victims of the crisis, victims of the change, like they have no agency, right, or no control. And that's really dangerous because when people start to feel that, if they stay in it, they're going to stay in losses and endings and not move forward. Now, the, the second stage of change is transition. And transition is, I always call it the Big Mac Daddy of change. It lasts typically six, eight, sometimes ten times as long as losses and endings. And so there are a lot of opportunities to get it wrong and a lot of opportunities to get it right as a leader. So those clues that the people in your organization are moving into that transition stage, and let me tell you, it's going to sound like they're not moving forward at all, but like this must be backwards. Anger, more mistrust, more resistant. You can see some drops in efficiency, collaboration, right? Group productivity. You can see more medical issues, more people on sick leave, right? As the, the pressures of transition and the uncertainties take their toll in stress. Um, weaknesses of the company tend to get even worse, I'm sorry to tell you. Um, and you can notice, start to notice some slowly encroaching cynicism. This is very dangerous because once people go to a cynical place, it's so hard to get them back into a positive perspective on the future. Um, this is caused by just the confusion and mental and emotional overload. All of these things are caused by this because that's the nature of transition. Um, that causes a lot of this increased conflict and blaming and anger and mistrust and resistance and less collaboration and all of those challenges. And, you know, one of my favorite writers on change, uh, the late Bill Bridges, called transition the nowhere between two somewheres. And I think that captures it. And that's super stressful for folks. But when they're in transition, they have actually moved forward in the personal change process, believe it or not. Now, eventually, as you move through transition, you play your cards right, you help them get through that, you're going to move on to new beginnings. And that new beginning stage, of course, everybody's favorite stage of change, um, is where you start to feel an internal alignment with the new state. I had a, I've had a number of people over the last month tell me, you know, I'm kind of adjusted now to this everybody's at home thing, everybody's on Zoom. It's kind of become my new normal. These are signs that as far as at least that aspect of the change goes, someone's moving into that new beginning state. Um, as you can tell by the example I just gave you, it's not directly correlated with a start date, right? Everybody started on Zoom months ago, but really moving through the transition and into those new beginnings took a little bit more time. Um, there can be um, a little bit of a, a shock or a brief move back into losses and endings when you move into new beginnings because you can prepare people for it. But for example, once people start going back into the office with, you know, screens and air filters and masks and big distance and only a certain number in at a time, you know, you have to experience that to really get fully how different it is and how done the old way is. So there can be a brief bump back, but it's nothing to worry about because you can move back into new beginnings pretty quickly. And, and you know, just like kids going back to school here. Oh. You know, like, oh, I'm going to go back and see my friends. And in their mind, it's going to seem like it, wait, mm -hmm. it's not exactly the way I yes. experienced it before. Like, that's going to be an interesting thing to see, you know, play out here pretty oh, soon. Great example. Because, you know, to me, it just exemplifies how these personal stages of change are just ingrained in being human. It's not something that, you know, becomes part of your adulthood. <laughs> you go through this as a kid, too. It's interesting, you know, so, so, you know, looking at this, you know, and, and just, you know, having experiencing leading teams, I mean, certainly yeah. you know, there's always not everything works, 
you know, yeah. and there are things that can make things kind of go backwards. You know, what, what are the yeah. a couple of things we shouldn't, as leaders should never say, you know, in each of these different stages. Yeah, great. Well, the good news is for new beginnings, there's nothing you shouldn't say. People are past the, you know, the emotional roller coaster part. But boy, in losses and endings and transitions, there are definitely things that leaders say with good intentions, but that actually backfire. So in losses and endings, there are really three. One is don't compare it to how much more others are losing. You might think you're helping this person set perspective, um, but in fact, coming from the boss, it just sounds like a criticism that there's some weak person who doesn't appreciate the job that they have right now. And so don't compare it, you know, yeah, you've had some losses, but boy, compare it to all these people that got laid off. No, 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 no. It just doesn't set perspective. It just makes them feel criticized, which keeps them in losses and endings and feeling like a victim. Secondly, don't be dismissive about what they're feeling. This one makes a lot of leaders nervous if they were uh, raised with the notion that they have to be strong at all times and emotions just get in the way. But really, you're going to get a lot more uh, progress from someone if you even sort of clumsily acknowledge that this must be hard for them or that you just really acknowledge that this is a loss for them. Um, much better than being dismissive and, and not acknowledging what they're feeling. And the third one to never, ever say when someone's in losses and endings is don't cheerlead for what they're gaining. And the best example of this is, you know, you have an employee who lives alone and uh, really looked forward to coming to work every day for the social interaction and that that meant a lot to her. And, you know, she's sad and she's starting to feel very lonely. This is not the time to say, hey, but you don't have that long two-hour commute every day. You know, it's just back. awful. <laughs> yeah, that's and, right. It's so well-intentioned, right? You think, oh, I'll cheer this employee up and we can move on. Nope. <laughs> not when they're sad. Not when you're reading sadness, losses, and endings. Much, much better to just acknowledge, yeah, that's a loss, isn't it? Yeah, and I'm, I'm sorry you're experiencing that loss, right? And what can we do to maybe help you with that? You're going to help them, weirdly, by acknowledging what they're experiencing instead of trying to pretend it's not there. You're going to help them move forward into the transition stage instead of holding them back. And then in the transition stage, there's really three things as well. And there are more things not to do than things not to say. So the first one is don't expect business as usual. It's a roller coaster. It's a wild ride through the transition stage. And so things aren't going to be the way they were. And, um, you know, your team is going to work in slightly different ways. They're going to struggle a little bit more to accomplish things that were easy not that very long ago. Don't expect business as usual. It sets, um, it sets an unfair expectation on your team um, that they probably can't rise up to. Um, and, and they're just going to be frustrated that you're unrealistic, right? Now, the second one is don't be impatient. Again, it, it's a little more chaotic. There's going to be a few more diving catches. Don't be impatient as they go through this process, right? Don't, don't be impatient if someone stays kind of in overload, you know, a couple weeks longer than you really think they should be there. Um, you know, be patient with these things as people go through them. And the third one, interestingly, is don't clamp down on controls. That is the biggest temptation for a leader in the transition stage because you see this chaos and it's a wild ride and there's so much out there that you can't control. I'll just, you know, make myself useful as a leader by clamping down on controls here and controlling everything here. But the problem with that is out of the transition stage, you can get phenomenal once-in-a-lifetime innovation if you play your cards right. The reason for that is with everything else being kind of up in the air and chaotic, People are more open-minded to new products, new services, new ways of operationalizing, new ways of doing things. And so if you're clamping down on controls, you're kind of doing the opposite of what spurs and encourages innovation, uh, which is encouraging more risk, not more control. So those would be the three things not to do 
in the transition stage. Yeah, it's super fascinating. Yeah. Uh, you know, and and you know, and anytime there's chaos, there there's opportunity. Yep. Love that. And and you know, it's almost interesting for for folks that are not able to embrace the fact that there's opportunity. You know, you could, they almost stick out right now, right? Yeah. Um, you know, what's interesting is, you know, we're not only in crisis, but we're also not together, right? We're all working remotely. Um, you know, how, how, give us some advice to the folks, you know, leaders who are listening on how to keep their teams connected and, 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 and even bring in new team members, you know, as everyone's working remotely and we're not all in the office together. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a great question. And it really is um, in many companies uh, they've been thrust into a world in which they can't see anybody working anymore, right? And, you know, I mean, unlike the company you work for, a lot of companies had this extremely measured, highly conservative approach to remote work to where if they had someone working remotely, they'd almost feel they needed to explain to me, well, this person works remotely for this very exceptional reason to, yeah. like, it's 100% remote starting today. <laughs> So, wow, that is like a head-spinning change in a lot of companies. Now, this can have significant upsides, at least for a while, but you really have to be on top of your leadership game in order to realize these because it's, it requires so much more attention to the subjective. So starting with leading with empathy, understanding those stages of change, sharing those with your team, talk about it together. Ask the team to figure out together with you what you can do to stay connected during these tumultuous times. Engage them in that process instead of feeling like you have to be the boss who's fixing this problem or, you know, telling them what they need to do. Really figure it out together. That helps keep a team connected because they're coming up with their solutions that will work for them. And then they're supporting each other moving forward um, in, in implementing those solutions. You know, so many leaders are afraid to bring up a, subject, a subjective type of conversation and show that empathy. Um, but, you know, if you're not doing that and you're just focused on deadlines and everybody's remote, well, it's pretty much task management that you're doing at that point, not really leadership. The bar is higher for leadership when everyone's remote. You have to work a lot harder at that subjective side. The subjective is as important as the objective. How people feel about you, about their teammates, about themselves actually literally impacts their performance. We have ample uh, academic research that supports that. And you literally make people smarter by ensuring that they feel like part of a team, that they're valued and that they're safe. What are you doing to help them feel those things? For some leaders, that's a big change in their internal mindset along with the fundamental need for positivity. Now, believe it or not, positivity is a measurable thing. Like, it's a thing. <laughs> positive <laughs> leaders actually have what you would think of as a positive to negative ratio of three to one or higher. So one of the best ways to keep that team feeling connected, optimistic, like they really want to be here to keep that morale up, is every time you catch yourself saying something negative, quickly say three positive things all in a row. Now, if you're not used to striving to be a positive leader, if you think your value is in the critic criticism that you can offer and, uh, and in the mistakes you can catch, this is going to be hard. So you have to keep at it. And I recognize this sounds downright dopey, but it is literally a part of rewiring your brain for that positive and inspiring leadership that is so much harder to do when everyone is remote. Right. That's coaching right there, right? I mean, that's yeah. what you do is help rewire. Rewire. Yes. We're rewiring <laughs> brains here. Coaching rewires. <laughs> we're like mechanics for your brain. <laughs> so this is where a lot of folks are going into their, you know, 21 planning. Uh, yeah. You know, they're bringing their teams together. You know, if they're, they're following your advice, they're, they're interacting more with their team. Yep. Um, you know, Give us some best practices that you're seeing around holding off-sites remotely. Yeah. Boy, this is really, truly an emerging area of expertise. 
I can tell you there was literally no demand for remote offsites before COVID-19 for among myself or any of my colleagues that I have checked in with. So I would say so far, I would advise first that your motto be prepare, prepare, prepare. You will need to design a remote offsite to be more structured with a much greater variety of discussion modes um, and ways of interacting in order to hit the same bar remotely that you hit in person. And you also generally want to lean toward more pre-work and more sharing of pre-work in advance um, because that's going to allow you to get right to work on the discussions and the analysis um, uh, without having to learn everything for the first time in the off-site. So leaning toward more pre-work is really very helpful because you can make the time, uh, the, the hours that you spend together a little shorter um, and, and a little more, you know, working time. Um, it's still early days on collaboration tools. I have some I like um, and other, other coaches have others that they like. I'd say it's still early days on that. Um, and I've recently actually created a one-page tip sheet for remote meetings. So uh, if you would like to get a PDF for that, um, again, just go to selbygroup.com. As with all things, sign up for the blog, and we're going to make that PDF available to the subscribers first. Um, and eventually it will just be available on the site, but I couldn't tell you when. So, so let me get this straight, right? We're, it's chaos. We're all at home. We've got tons of transformation that's underway. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, we've got to make a huge impact, right? And yeah. the, the, the world that I live in, right, that you're yeah. helping mold, right, the world of yeah. cyber, um, it takes more than just process, mm -hmm. um, documentation. Yes. Right? You got to influence a lot of things, a lot of people um, at a time where things are chaotic and no one's together, right? To yeah. ensure transformation happens. Yeah. Um, give us a little insight into, you know, the best way to influence during this time. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you're spot on. It takes more than a good process or a clear decision chart to create large-scale culture transformations. And, you know, I have yet to see, um, you know, cybersecurity or InfoSec professionals who didn't really have to create culture change in order to secure their companies, right? And so this is really front and center um, in this space. It's a huge topic, but let's look at a couple of things that you could start doing and, and experimenting with right away. The first one I would say is to really step back and ask yourself, who do you need to influence? Because it's not just the obvious people. So particularly in a function as complex and multidimensional as cyber, it's important to ask not just who has the authority to make this decision, but also who influences this decision maker. Now, it may even mean swallowing your ego to first build a relationship with someone a little lower down in the ranks than you, who then becomes an advocate for cyber or infosec. You know, coming to understand that person, their core motivators, their needs, concerns, dreams, aspirations, that can be really important because then that person uh, becomes an advocate, right, for, for, for you and, and for your business goals. And I've been just absolutely amazed at who the most powerful influencers are sometimes. At times, it's an individual contributor on the leader's team, whose opinion the leader trusts most, even if that person doesn't have any formal training and not much of a background in cybersecurity, it's not always the first person you're likely to think of. So you show up on the scene with deep expertise in this space, and you keep sniffing around to find out who's really influencing this leader, and you're like, holy cow, I can't believe it's that dude, but... Yeah, it's that dude. <laughs> so that becomes somewhat important to, uh, to influence, not just that person at the top who makes the big decisions. Are there so, different types yeah. of like, influence? Like, yeah. So, you may yeah, ab like, absolutely. 
So I'd say, you know, really for simplicity, you can group most people into four sort of fundamental needs when it comes to influence. And it's, they have nicknames, the traditionalist, the experiencer, the conceptualizer, and the idealist. And to some extent, you know, we have all of these in all of us. But luckily, if you're looking to influence, you don't really have to think about all of this with any one person. You just have to figure out through some clues which is that most important thing to them. So for the person who's a traditionalist, now this is probably 50% or more of the people you will need to influence because once you're in midsize and larger companies, it's a huge percentage of the population. Traditionalists are drawn to those larger companies because they create stability and they like stability. Um, they want to be responsible. Membership, belonging, these are very, very important things to the traditionalist. And so they don't like disorder. Um, they don't like you to show up uh, with just like some huge idea, right, that is, does, doesn't feel orderly or well thought through, right? Um, and so you're going to look for clues um, like traditionalists tend to be on time all the time. They're very steady. They exude that kind of dependability, rock solid vibe. Um, they tend to be very efficient. They often like to be helpful, right? Because again, membership, belonging, responsibility are core values. Um, they're nearly always going to have a role appropriate appearance, right? They're, uh, uh, I had a, a traditionalist client who um, uh, swore like a sailor, as the old saying went. Uh, but when somebody suggested that they create theme t-shirts for IT that had a profanity on them, it's, you know, we get, you know what, done. Um, he said, absolutely not. It is completely inappropriate to put a profanity on a t-shirt. Like he knew this very clear line that you don't cross and he's not going to cross it. So they're often comparing the new to the known, right? If you bring in a new way of securing the network, uh, they're going to compare it uh, with a phenomenal memory for details to old ways of doing it, current ways of doing it. And they're going to be the most respectful of roles, hierarchy, established processes and standards. So don't show up and say, we're going to blow this up. You need to really understand those processes and standards and why they're there and what the benefits are before you propose making those changes. And, you know, I have to say of all of my clients, those who are the most distressed by someone going over their heads are the traditionalists. So really try to work with that traditionalist. Don't, you know, just go up over their head um, lightly. Um, so also I'm going to say, obviously, you want to link your proposal to demonstrated successes of a similar nature, right? This is where your use cases from similar companies come in handy. Show how it's going to reduce risk. They really want to keep the company secure and stable. So these can be some of your hugest advocates, but you have to make it really clear how your idea is going to reduce risk um, in a way that's better or different from other ideas that have been proposed. And last of all, address every concern raised. The traditionalists often get a bad rap as resisting change, which is completely unfair and untrue. What happens is they're going to try to eliminate the risk as much as possible and really manage it. And so they're going to raise a lot of concerns. And you really have to address every one of them respectfully, thoughtfully, acknowledging that it's a legitimate concern. So that'd be one way to sabotage that transformation, right? Kind of go too <laughs> yeah. fast, not be inclusive, no collaboration, don't communicate, yep. right? Yeah, yeah. Just charge <laughs> in. I'm the expert. You hired me with the solution. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that just doesn't fly with the traditionalists. They'll boot you out of there so fast you won't even know what happened. <laughs> yeah. So, so I want to switch topics for a second. Yeah. And just get your take on, and I bet you get asked about this a ton, but just moving through your leadership career, right? We talked a lot about managing other people, but oh yeah, you know, give me some, give the audience a little bit of flavor on, you know, as people go from that VP to the SVP, like there's a fine night, fine difference. It seems like, but there's a lot of growth that has to happen. Yeah. 
um, you know, just give us a little insight in the, you know, how you can help people navigate their, their leadership, you know, career. Yeah. Becoming an executive and then a senior executive. I say this is the second biggest career shift second only to your first job as a manager where, you know, you, you realize somewhere along the line in that first job as a manager, I didn't just get promoted. I changed careers. There's nothing about being a manager that's at all similar to being, say, an engineer, right, or whatever you did before. And so that shift into becoming an executive and a senior executive is really that second biggest career shift. It's often a rough ride. It's a change, really, in many ways in your identity because you're shifting from the middle where most professionals spend a decade or two decades of their careers. You've spent a lot of time there, so this is a very profound change. You know, a lot of times what happens is you start to recognize, uh... I don't work for someone who understands my space anymore. I'm now the senior most person who understands this space. Unless the person you happen to report to happens to come out of the same background, but that's not commonly the case. So suddenly it is entirely on you to influence and persuade peers and senior executives who have very different professional backgrounds than you and who don't have your depth of, uh, of technical and cyber knowledge. And to some extent, this is also true for directors, but it becomes profoundly true for VPs and SVPs. Um, Likewise, your span of control has certainly expanded to leading a lot of people who do things you've never personally done in your career. Uh, because VP span, and certainly an SVP span, is very broad. I've had VP clients um, who barely understood the technology they inherited and were ultimately responsible for. And this was uncomfortable the first time around, you know. The other thing that I think happens that is a, a hard adjustment for many people is suddenly absolutely nobody wants you to tell them the details. Uh, but you still sure have to have, be ready with them if they ask. Uh, instead, everyone's constantly looking to you to set the stage, to set the mood for the meeting, to inspire with the vision that will get them through the most challenging times. I mean, holy cow. And when, when a lot of people make that transition, they stay a little bit stuck in that identity of being in the middle or the upper middle. And so they're still reporting out a lot of detail instead of interpreting it in a way to tell a story. Um, they're still speaking in the language of their profession when trying to communicate with people who don't share their backgrounds. And of course, this lessens their influence and then makes them feel even lonelier. So that first step is really to recognize what a huge change this promotion really is. I think it helps a lot to know that you're not the only one who's had a bit of a shock in making this transition. Yeah, that's such good advice. Um, you know, I, I find it interesting, especially when you talk to the, you know, our audience, you know, having to feel like you're having to translate what we do in cybersecurity all the time, um, you know, then doing it at now an executive level, like it's so different. Um, yeah, really cool perspective. All right, folks, we got to take another short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away. We'll be right back with more from our special guest, founder of Selby Group, Mrs. Jennifer Selby Long. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. 
as CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community, advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem superconnector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at Secure. Security-innovation.org or Google Signet S-I-N-E-T. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, founder of Selby Group, Mrs. Jennifer Selby Long. Jennifer, I got to ask you, you know, <laughs> you've got 45,000 views on your LinkedIn post, how to handle an ineffective boss. I love <laughs> the title. I hope it wasn't my people calling you, <laughs> telling me, <laughs> complaining about me and asking for advice. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was not, Andy. You'll be relieved to know. <laughs> That's good. Uh, look, I'm sure a lot of people have experienced this. Thankfully, uh, I've had some great bosses. I've also had okay. some some challenging bosses. Mm-hmm. I wish I had this advice then. Give us <laughs> give us the insights. Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's just, you know, sort of fascinating and, and mortifying to me that this is by far my most read LinkedIn post. And uh, people still keep going back to it. And I probably wrote it four years ago now. So it's just amazing to me. But it tells me a lot of people feel that they're really suffering from you know, working for an ineffective boss and they want to know how the heck to handle this frustrating situation. So really, let's start with the three mistakes that I find, you know, even very talented professionals make when they find themselves working for an ineffective boss. Now, the first mistake is to avoid taking action by playing armchair psychologist. So here's just a few I've heard and people complaining over the years. Passive aggressive, taking out his anger at his ex-wife on everyone on his team, (laughs) bad childhood, hates men, commitment phobe. These may or may not be real issues your boss is facing. Who knows? However, you inadvertently disempower yourself if you spend too much time hypothesizing about a psychological issue, because even if it turns out that you're right, you can't personally treat it. So you can't do anything about it. So you disempower yourself. The second mistake is losing perspective by getting attached to one and only one solution. Things like, I must persevere and turn around this product line no matter how much my funding gets cut or how often my boss and her boss change direction. Or, I must get a big win so he can see how wrong he is. Or, I'm going to HR and I'm not giving up until they fight for what's right. So, any of these things might be viable, but there's rarely just one clear-cut superior solution to the problems caused by an ineffective boss. 
However, there are probably multiple good solutions and there are certainly more options. So don't lose perspective by getting attached and staying attached to only one solution. It kills your creative problem solving around this. And the third mistake is to create an emotional sinkhole for yourself by making it personal and taking sides in political battles. So ineffective bosses lead often to lower performance, which leads often to stress, which leads often to making it personal or taking sides in a backside covering political battle. Now, when you find yourself thinking of your boss in sweeping terms that just belittle him or her as a human being, you know, you just feed the intensely negative energy that's already there as the battle rages on, and this does nothing to help you or your team. Likewise, an ineffective boss is such an easy target for snarky side conversations, but this can also deepen that emotional sinkhole because the storyline in the snarky side conversation really casts you and others as helpless victims of the boss's ineffectiveness. So again, dis it disempowers. So looking at the mistakes that people commonly make when they're in this situation with an ineffective boss, you know, let's turn our attention to five things that you could do to actually analyze the situation from a different perspective and figure out a way to handle it that really works best for you. So the first one I'd suggest is to step way back from the situation and size up the degree to which his or her incompetence actually affects you. So, of course, it's disappointing when your boss routinely lets you down, but what's that actual impact? So, slowing down your professional growth for a couple of months, that's not in the same league with your entire bonus being on the line because of your boss's ineffectiveness, or perhaps your personal reputation being put in jeopardy with people you respect. So this more reflective exercise, it's going to look different for different people at different times in their lives, but doing it calibrates the situations to your needs now. You know, is it a situation where several years of minor ineffectiveness has added up to something much bigger than you had realized? Or is the situation short term and you just want to stop letting it bother you so much until it changes? Now, the second thing I'd suggest is to assess if you're in a politically messy situation and if so, begin basic defensive action. Now, this is not the sort of thing you usually hear from a coach, but sometimes you are in a politically messy situation and you may need to get into a defensive mode. It's not going to feel real constructive. Uh, but sometimes it is necessary because employees have lost their jobs due to ineffective managers who failed to protect them and in some cases gave them the axe. If you sense that kind of risk and it's important to you to keep this job, start the documentation of conversations, agreements, and open up items. Try to have fewer one-on-one -on -one conversations, more group conversations if it's appropriate to the work. Again, it pains me to give this advice because that would mean this is a very serious situation. But if that's what you're in, I also want to advise you, maintain your composure no matter how absurd a conversation becomes. True story. I am not making this up. One of my clients found himself receiving the wrong performance review from his general manager who couldn't keep the direct report straight in her own mind. She launched into a review thinking he was another man on the team who kind of looked like him. He maintained his composure, told her that the objectives she was covering were for the other man's projects made sure that accurate data about his performance got into writing. He could have freaked out. He could have gotten really angry. You know, those would have been fair things to do. But he made the smart choice, which is, hey, maintain my composure. This is absurd, but I really have to maintain my composure no matter how absurd the conversation becomes. Um, now, you should not become ultra paranoid all the time. You should not stop trying to build a positive working relationship with this boss, but you do need to anticipate if the situation is as serious that you, you might need to take some simple steps to protect your team and yourself. So moving on to the more encouraging uh, items, uh, 
consider multiple ways to deal with the situation. If the ineffectiveness is entrenched, or it's the result of a bevy of bad bosses way on up the line, hey, let's face it, you may need to simply go find yourself a better boss at a better company. But if your ineffective boss is new to the role and having a bumpy transition, well, that would be overreacting. You, you could just choose to figure out how you might help that boss be better at the job for now. For some folks, that feels like nails on a chalkboard, right? But hey, I'm just suggesting don't throw out the baby with the bathwater if this may just be a bumpy transition and short term. Consider doing things like going out of your way to ensure that the team achieves its goals while the boss is getting up to speed on their new responsibilities or offer to help out in an area where that person doesn't do real well and doesn't enjoy. Um, it can be something as simple as validating a project plan or initiating a team building outing. It doesn't much matter what it is. Um, it's about kind of saying, hey, how can I be helpful to this person in this situation? Because it, 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 I could help make it temporary, right? I can help this person get better faster. And then honestly ask yourself if you're resisting adapting to a change. Ooh, this is a really painful question to ask yourself. It's painful to admit that you might be overly critical of the boss, because you applied for that person's job and you were rejected, or that your expectations are too high because you've had three bad bosses in as many years, or that even if the boss's strategy is sound, you just plain hate it. Now, if you recognize that you're just resisting adapting to a change you don't like, you might decide that you should adapt and, and make that choice. You might decide to voice your concerns about the change and commit to making it successful despite your concerns. You might even decide that the change isn't for you and go find another job. But whatever you decide, at least it will be an informed choice made after self-reflection rather than a choice driven by unexamined and unconscious reactions. And then lastly, I'd say look at the trend in yourself. This is where your spouse, partner, or a close longtime friend can really be an enormous gift. Ask that person, what do they see? Have you been complaining about this incompetent boss for a long time, frequently, or is it kind of new? Do you seem to this person to complain about every boss, or is this a one-off, a unique situation? Is there any pattern he or she sees? Now, I admit not as a coach, but as a friend, I have lovingly and firmly told friends that they're no longer allowed to complain to me about their bosses because they needed to either get a new boss or take a new attitude. Do something and, about it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I would say, you know, to folks, have you asked your confidants for their feedback? Their perspectives can really help you gain insights that are impossible to gain on your own because it's hard to see the whole picture when you're inside the frame. And then you're going to make better decisions about what to do. Sounds like that's more mentor than coach, but that's... Mm, yeah, pal. <laughs> All right. Well, Jennifer, listen, I really appreciate you know, you know, what you do for me and you know, our work with me, but I really appreciate you coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure. All right, folks, it's time for us to bounce up on out of here. But before I go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to get a recap of tonight's show and to get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.